0: Hi, Pastor Mike Fabares here. In August 2024, you're invited to join me on a seven-day cruise to Alaska. Delve into God's Word while taking in the rugged beauty of the Alaskan coast. Visit focalpointministries.org slash Alaska.
1: Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares.
0: Patiently, number one, wait for God's promises. Wait for them. Because we're living in a in an Egypt where the king does not know Joseph. We live in a world where the king does not know Jesus. You, you live in a culture where the leaders do not care about the king of kings and lord of lords. So you're living in Egypt and you have to say, I live in Egypt with this absolute assurance and confidence in what Jesus said was true.
1: You feel when a flight is delayed or a package arrives late? When something we eagerly expect is slow in coming, most of us get pretty anxious and annoyed, right? But God's people are called to be patient. And today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares says that if we really believe God's promises, it should change the way we live. But how? Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy. Let's find out as we listen to this message from Pastor Mike called, The Preparation of Moses. to
0: be uh, here to open God's Word. I have uh, enjoyed this study of Acts chapter 7 that we're in the middle of. And uh, as I told you at the outset, there's three balls that we are juggling in looking at Stephen responding to the same group of people, the Sanhedrin, that condemned Christ to death and handed handed him over to the Romans. And also his pastor had been there too, Peter, of course, hauled in before the court. And now Stephen is here trying to respond to the accusation that he's blaspheming against God and he's blaspheming against Moses and against this place. Remember all that from chapter six, right there in verse 11, they say that they instigated witnesses that are saying that. So Stephen starts this longest recorded response or, or any recorded response in Acts to that accusation. And he's giving us as a lot of people say, it's a history lesson, which it seems like it's obfuscating a lot of what is being accused, but there's a masterful response in ball number one in saying, I'm giving you an answer to what you're saying regarding why Christians are not wrong. We're not wrong in following Christ. We're right in following Christ, even though it doesn't seem to fit clearly into your expectation of what God would do at this point. Uh, Then, of course, there's an Old Testament story that we learn, and as 1 Corinthians 10 says, we have a lot to learn from the lessons of the Old Testament saints, and we should learn them. We shouldn't minimize that. And then, of course, the Christological truths, how do these characters, whether it's Abraham that we started with or Joseph that we dealt with last time or today Moses, how does that give us a sense of the fulfillment of God's work in Christ? Christ, the ultimate deliverer, uh, the ultimate Abraham, the ultimate Joseph, the ultimate Moses. So those are things to keep in mind. But as I studied this passage this week, I thought what we really, I think, need to camp on today is what the contrast of how Stephen is so different than the Sanhedrin and has such a different response, not only to the truth of what God is doing in redemptive history, but Even what's happening here, Uh, the the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders are angry and they're hostile and they're about to commit murder. They're about to stone this guy to death. We got Stephen here standing up for the truth, following the truth where it leads, responding rightly to biblical scriptures, and then uh, dying with uh, courage and peace. And we recognize they're in two different places. They both claim to be right with God, but they are in two different demonstrations of that. They have expressions of that that are radically different. And I, I thought that's such a good lesson for us to think through as we sit here today as Christians saying that we have a relationship with, with God. Sanhedrin would say they have a relationship with God. Stephen would say he has a relationship with God. Peter would say he has a relationship with God, but they are demonstrating that in such different ways, not only as to how they deal with the truth of what the Bible said would happen, the coming of Christ. And the Jews, uh, Jewish leaders, were rejecting that. But how they demonstrated their their relationship with God, how they lived that—the fruit of all of that—we've gone through two characters, Abraham, and now, lastly, we had Joseph. And now, I want to get you to look at this text and have you look at Acts chapter seven, verses 17 through 22, and to have us think through how this becomes a paradigm for many things that might challenge and test our Christian life that we might leave here today with a, a little better understanding of where the target should be, the goal should be for me to improve this thing I claim to have, a relationship with God. So take a look at verse 17 of Acts chapter 7. Glance back up at verse 11 of chapter 6. You'll remember the accusation against Moses, and now he's going to enlist Moses, of course, positively as an example. And you'll see there, if you glance through all of this, starting in verse 17, all these verses about Moses. And we're only going to be able to deal with his life in three, uh, we can't do it in one sermon, we could, I suppose, but we're going to do it in three sermons. So we've got Moses' life in the first 40 years, and Moses' life in the second 40 years, and Moses' life in the last 40 years. First 40 years, he grows up in Egypt. Second 40 years, he's working for his father-in-law in the desert, that's not a good season of life. And then the last 40 years, he's doing all the stuff in the exodus wilderness wanderings, the showdown with Pharaoh and leading the people right up to the front door, of the promised land. So we're gonna look at those in three segments, but we're gonna deal with the first one, verses 17 through 22, and try and understand uh, the preparation of Moses for this deliverance. And I'll have no problem making some, what you might claim are moralistic connections to how Moses is prepared for this, and you ought to be prepared for some things that God wants to use in your life. We'll get to that. But let's read it. With commentary, let's read through the text together. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, I don't like that translation, granted, he'd, he'd given the promise to him, right? It's not, he didn't fulfill it. Granted, it seems like it's fulfilled. Not fulfilled yet. That was the whole point of the Abraham segment, right? He didn't fulfill it. Promised him a land, pulled him out of the Mesopotamian, Babylonian crescent there, and, and he brings him into a land where he's a, a sojourner. He doesn't get the land. And the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Now, my question, I suppose, for you, if you're thinking, a thinking Christian, you look at that and say, what part of the promise is gonna be fulfilled? you gotta think back to the Abrahamic covenant, parts to the covenant. The covenant, first of all, is Abraham, you don't have any kids, but you're gonna have a, a big family come from you. You're gonna have this big nation. So he doesn't have any kids, And we got to grow the population. And then he says, you're going to be brought to a land I'm going to put you in. So there's the land part of it. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a great person and renowned. And then you're going to bless the whole earth through somehow what I'm going to do through you. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. So these segments of the promise, my question is, which part of the promise is drawing near to be fulfilled? And and you look at the passage and you go, well, they're increasing in number. Well, that's incremental. So I guess that's being fulfilled a little at a time. Are you following this? What part do you think he has in mind here? Well, the part is the conquest of the land, it would seem, because he's a sojourner. When are they going to own the land and settle the land and kick out these people that are killing their babies in Canaan and and, and replace them with a righteous society, Uh, much more righteous at least, relatively speaking? Well, that's going to happen when Joshua leads them in. So we're getting near to that. So we had, you know, 2000 B.C., Abraham and the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, that whole period of time. And now we get to a place where 400 years later, we're going to raise up Moses, we're going to get out of Egypt, they're out of the promised land, and then they're going to settle in the promised land. So we're almost to the land part of the promise. So as the time of the promise drew near, the fulfillment of that part, which God had promised to, to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied. So it's incrementally growing in population now we're going we're gonna to get to the land. Now, what were the circumstances? Verse 18, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, probably the 18th dynasty in Egypt. They had a change of regime and, and leadership. The dynasties rolled over. And when you had that, it's not that they didn't know the history of, of Egypt. Of course, they knew Joseph because Joseph saved the country. I mean, they like to downplay it because he's an outsider, but the idea of of remembering him, that wasn't the point. The point was, we don't we don't care. Just like a lot of things in our country right now, we look back, we don't care about that. And if the country decides not to care about that, well, then it doesn't matter, and you have no advantage based on the past. And, and so we're not going to favor you anymore. And they didn't favor them anymore. Matter of fact, the new pharaoh had to verse 19 deal shrewdly, which is one way to put it treacherously with our race. He dealt shrewdly with the Israelites and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Now we've got a lot of people in Israel you are the political leadership, you see you have a foreign entity that grows and, grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and prospers. You're increasingly shrewdly, if you want to put it that way, subjugating them to the advantage of your society. But they're so big, they're so strong, you have to say, I, we got a problem. We get hit with an outside enemy here. We have a disloyal group within our ranks. We're going to have to limit them. So they start the infanticide of killing their infants. And, and you know this from the Bible story in, in Exodus chapter 1. So they start killing the babies, which is horrific, like our society loves to do. And we have a, a horrible thing taking place. And you can see why they're, they're crying out uh, to God for a lot of things, the enslavement and the killing of their children. Verse 20. At this time, Moses was born which is a great line, reminds me of Galatians 4.4, 4, when God sends to deliver, it is at the right time, right? At the proper time, at the fullness of time, Christ was sent. And now this is the right time according to God, which again is going to speak to something I want to emphasize this morning, the providence of God, the, the sovereignty of God, the right time. God says, okay, now's the time I'm going to change some things up here in redemptive history. And he was beautiful in God's sight. So how chubby uh, do babies need to be for God? I mean, what, what does that mean? Do you think this has to do with how he looks? Well, in Exodus 1, there are statements about how Moses looks, and there's a lot of extra biblical writings about, wow, Moses must have been this amazing-looking baby and this amazing-looking person, and there are all kinds of weird stories about all that. But I don't think that's really, if you think about it, what this means. The idea is, though he was an attractive child, and it may have caught the attention of more than his parents, the idea is that God said, this is it, my favor here, I found this person There's much more, of course, because we know man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. We know that. So there's something deeper here about God saying, this is the man, this is who I've chosen, and God chooses who he chooses, and he chooses Moses. And he said, this is it, my favor here, this is beautiful, it's right. This word has greater implications than just, you know, what the shape of his cheeks were. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and you know the story, right? They're supposed to be killing these children, but he's brought up in his own home. Uh, But then he's put out there in the bulrushes of the Nile, very carefully done. He's got two older siblings at this point that we know of, Miriam and Aaron, and they scheme this whole thing. Miriam's probably a preteen. Aaron's three years older, and they set the baby out there. The Pharaoh comes down, and if the dynasties are all right, this probably was Pharaoh's daughter who was infertile, did not have children, ends up finding this child, and all of this works out to where he ends up getting adopted, as it says here, in raise, it says, verse 21, uh, when he was out there in the Nile, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son, which is a crazy turn of events. Again, much like the timing of Moses's birth, the circumstances of Moses's upbringing were incredible. Verse 22, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And, and that was how God set this up. The man who's going to write the first five books of the Bible was the best educated person in all of Israel because he was adopted into the university systems as the child of the Pharaoh, the adopted child of Pharaoh and, and Pharaoh's daughter, and was perfectly positioned for this. So God in his providence set this all up, which by the way, if you know your Bible and you think, what about the burning bush? When God comes to Moses and speaks and says, come and, and go talk to Pharaoh, what did he say about his speaking skills? Do you remember Sunday school grads? we say, oh, I'm good for that. I got an A in, in, in my rhetoric class or my speech class. No. He said, I can't do it. He uses an interesting uh, Hebrew idiom. I, I have uncircumcised lips, right? I just, bleh, I can't talk. And so uh, who's right? Oh, God's right, of course. He, he could talk, and, and that was an excuse. And I would venture to say you probably shouldn't be using excuses with God when you want to get out of things, which is, by the way, why God immediately says in that passage, well, not immediately, but a couple verses later, the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. He didn't like that because, of course, he'd been in every advantage God had prepared him, and he didn't want to do it truth was he was well prepared for what god had called him to do let's work through this and think through our own lives deal with this issue verse 17 time of the promise drew near abrahamic covenant got to have a people got to have a land going to have greatness going to bless the world in some way in the end in many ways the promise of god for the church as we sit here in our own little egypt called modern society we have a similar kind of of contrast and juxtaposition of, of problems Jesus comes on the scene and uses, the first time he uses the word church in Matthew 16, he says, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and so he's, he's got this organization and he gives all these parables about something starting small, like a seed, a mustard seed, and it grows big and all the birds dwell on the branches. He's growing this thing. And much like they were growing and increasing in, in Egypt, that part of the promise of the church promise to us is, is being fulfilled incrementally. That's why we're all about numbers. And if you're down on numbers, you're wrong. You need to be all about numbers because God is all about numbers because every number represents a person. That's why we care about church planning. That's why we care about church growth. That's why we want you to invite people to church. That's why we want you to do evangelism. Why we want you to do apologetics. That is what the church is about. It's about us growing this thing, making disciples of all the nations, planting churches, doing missions, and seeing more and more people bow the knee to Jesus Christ. That's the point. If you don't like that, you're wrong. So you need to get right about that and you say, I'm into that now because that's what the Bible says. And he's going to build his church. And the point is we're pushing the borders of the church and the gates of will not be able to prevail against it. So that's an incremental fulfillment. And we sit here, I hope, as we do. That's why we take attendance and keep track and figure out how much money we're gonna spend on church planning because we wanna see this grow. That's the, the, the goal. That's the, that's the point. And so we're all about that. And, and, and we say, well, that's going on just like it was going on here. God is fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant in Egypt. God is fulfilling the promise to the church in Orange County and all over the world. More Christians being brought to Christ. That's the goal. As hard as that is in Egypt, he says a couple chapters later, Matthew 19, speaking of, just to make some parallels, there's going to be a land. He says to these fishermen from Galilee, when the Son of Man returns and sits on his glorious throne, you who follow me in this life will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a picture of guys that are not in power of it to speak of um, by the world standards who are going to be in massive power. They're going to sit on 12 thrones, judging 12 tribes in Israel when the Son of Man comes and sits on his glorious throne. So there is a deliverer that's coming. We often think about Jesus already came, but he came to pay the price so that he could put this whole redemptive thing in motion, and he's coming back to establish it. And so the deliverer will come. In Egypt, the people were growing. So there's a promise fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, but then there's going to be deliverer. We're going to go to the promised land. And that's the picture in the church as well. We sit here today saying we're growing the church, growing the church, growing the church, but we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's going to come back and transform the world. And as I often quote from the book of Revelation, chapter 11, the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So that's the hope. And I've said it ad infinitum, right? The Christian life is not about the here and now. It's about the then and there. We're looking forward to that fulfillment. And that's the promise. The promise is he's coming and he's going to establish his kingdom. And it's going to be great. They're not going to sit on 12 folding chairs. They're going to sit on 12 thrones. It's going to be a big deal. And his glory is going to cover this earth. And that's what we're hoping in. That's the focus. That's what we're looking toward. And we rely all on that promise. Now, the question is, and again, I don't want to be too esoteric, but the question is, do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? I hope this is more than just, I hope my kids don't, you know, get on drugs, so I'm going to drag them to church. And, you know, I guess it's great when I don't cuss as much and I go to church. And it's really cool when I can think about transcendent things, so I go to church. And, and it's neat to read the history of the Bible and, and I understand stuff my grandpa told me. I go to church. It's not about that. Right? This is about you believing there is a God. He has created you. You got a problem. He sent his son to solve that problem. He's called you to a group of people that are about expanding the reach of the Lordship of Christ. And he's coming to set up a kingdom and you're gonna rule and reign with Christ. That is theology. That is what we're here for. That's what this is all about. And you say, that's what I'm all about. And I believe that. And everything in my life, everything in my life comes back to my trust in that, that I believe it. And it changes everything about how I live. Let me put it this way. Just like they had to believe that sitting in Egypt when they were slaves, growing and seeing part of the fulfillment, but not all of the fulfillment, you need to do the same. Put it this way. Patiently, number one, wait for God's promises. Wait for them. Because we're living in a in an Egypt where the king does not know Joseph. We live in a world where the king does not know Jesus. You, you live in a culture where the leaders do not care about the king of kings and lord of lords. So you're living in Egypt And you have to say, I live in Egypt with this absolute assurance and confidence in what Jesus said was true. And I'll just tie these together in a verse you know. How about this one? John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, when Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You know these verses, right? Believe me. Believe God. Dude, he has promised you these things, right? In my father's house, Many mansions, many places. Many, I got a place, a kingdom and a place for you in it. And if I go and prepare a place, now I'm leaving now by 2,000 years later, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself that where I am, you will be also. If, you just, if all you had of the Bible were those three verses right there, wouldn't be a lot, but it'd be enough for you to sit here and go, okay, I get it. I am not freaking out. I live in Egypt. I don't like it. I don't like what's going on here. They don't follow our God. They don't follow our truth. They don't care about what I'm all about. But I believe what he said, and therefore, my heart is not troubled. I have absolute confidence in what he said. Either you believe it or you don't. And I really believe that. I look out at you. I think to myself, there there are haves and have-nots sitting here right now. You either are with me on this, and you believe it, or you're just stinking playing a game with church and God. It's one way or the other, right? You cannot have a middle ground on this. You believe it or you don't believe it. It's either true or it's not true. And if it's true, I'm sorry. It's got to change the way that you think. It has to change the way you feel. It has to change the way that you you stop worrying. You stop being anxious. You stop being prayerless. You stop being hopeless. You stop avoiding time with God. All of that doesn't make any sense if you believe his promises, right? And I'm telling you this, everything that God has promised, it seems like his track record has been pretty darn good over the past history of reality. Right? He's, he's done well with all of this. One passage with this, if I could just have you look at one cross-reference. James chapter 5, please. James chapter 5. Look at verse 7 with me, please. This is what we need. I use the word patiently if you wrote that down. Patiently wait for God's promises. That sounds very passive, and of course, there's a lot of active things that we do in the middle of it all, but, but the The key word here, I just want you to to see it. you got to be patient. Some of you are not patient people. Time for us to be more patient. Verse 7, James 5, 7, are you with me? Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. That, by the way, would be a good one. Put it right up on your your kitchen sink. Put it right on your dashboard. That is a good summary of so much of what it is to live in Egypt and to say, okay, I'm going to be patient. Be patient. Therefore, brothers, we're in this family. We're part of this thing until the coming of the Lord. Well, I don't like to wait. Well, neither do farmers, but they have to. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains? It doesn't all happen at once, right? So also, be patient. Now, here's what you really need. Look at this great word. I love it. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand well, it's sure taken a long time. It's, it's not as though, and I often illustrate it this way, it's not like there's a train coming with your dad on it and it's a long ways across the country and it's taking so long to get here. That's not it. It's that dad is already in the house, at the door. He's right outside the room. That's the picture. Matter of fact, it's one of the things that should govern our attitude. Speaking of attitude, verse nine, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. That's the picture. He could bust through this at any time. Right? Christ could be dispatched today. And so I just wanna tell you today, if you really, really say you trust God, you believe God, if you trust in God, well, that's gonna change your attitude. And it's gonna change your attitude, it's gonna change your grumbling, it's gonna change your lack of patience. It's going to, you're gonna say, I'm gonna hang in there.
1: You're listening to Focal Point and a message from Pastor Mike Fabares called The Preparation of Moses. And we're discovering how the ancient stories of men like Moses can help us today. If you're just joining us now and you want to hear the previous messages, you can find the entire series of Gospel Lessons from the Old Testament online at focalpointradio.org. Well, how well do you really know what your favorite Old Testament stories mean? There are a lot of popular misconceptions floating around, and sometimes even well-meaning Christians can get mixed up. So to help you get clarity, Pastor Mike has selected an excellent resource with you in mind titled The Most Misused Stories in the Bible, Surprising Ways Popular Bible Stories Are Misunderstood by Eric Bargerhoff. Find out the life-changing truths in stories such as David and Goliath, Jonah and the Big Fish, The Woman Caught in Adultery, Gideon and His Fleece, Judas the Betrayer, and more. And you can request a copy of this book when you give generously to Focal Point. It's easy to give when you call triple eight three two zero five eight eight five, or give online at focalpointradio.org. And don't forget to request your copy of The Most Misused Stories in the Bible. We're glad you joined us today, and we hope you've benefited from listening to Pastor Mike. And if you want to keep these messages on the air in your community and across the country, please partner with us by giving a financial gift. Your support is needed to help us reach a wider audience with biblical teaching that doesn't shy away from difficult truths. Just call us at 888-320-5885 or go online at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Druey, inviting you to join us again tomorrow to listen to the second part of Pastor Mike's message called The Preparation of Moses. That's Wednesday on Focal Point.
0: Pastor Mike here. I pray today's message will help you live out your faith with truth and love. After all, that's the kind of biblical faith that changes lives and transforms a crooked culture. But if you haven't truly surrendered your life to Christ, then I'd like to invite you to get in touch. We'd love to pray with you and help you discover God's plan of salvation visit focalpointradio.org.
1: Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.